This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. At least that's our name for now. This weekend, we are offering seven conversations from episodes 29 and 30, our real-time coverage of Easel Congress 2023. Plus, on Tuesday, we will be reposting episode 28 with Mike Patel for the Fatty Liver Alliance and I, interviewing Dr. Tetiana Deshko, Director of Programs at the Alliance for Public Health in Ukraine. These episodes speak for themselves, so I'm going to keep the introduction short and sweet, leaving more time for the conversations themselves. This conversation continues our early Saturday morning coverage of the first three days of the Easel Congress. 2023. The group focuses on a Friday afternoon session that Jorn Schottenberg co-chaired discussing challenges in screening patients for fatty liver diseases. One issue we discuss is the dynamic time tension frontline treaters in the UK feel between having time for multi-stage sequential screening and having time to support behavioral interventions adequately. It seems they are concerned they cannot do both well enough. The conversation shifts to focus on the Friday morning session on therapies, which Jorn describes as the second wave of NASH drugs, including two dual agonist, afenopegdithide from MSD and pemvidatide from Ultimune that can achieve what Ian Rowe describes as, and I quote, huge reductions, end of quote, in liver fat. We touch on two other presentations from that session, one covering the impact on liver of intermittent fasting versus standard calorie reduction, and another reporting results on an RNA-based product from Regeneron and Alneolum. For a variety of reasons, the entire community looked forward to this meeting with an intensity and excitement I, at least, had not seen at previous events. These seven conversations suggest that the actual event met or exceeded these high expectations. So did the fact that the Tsunami podcast will spend the next month with five episodes reviewing highlights from meetings in detail. A lot happened. A lot's worth thinking about. A lot worth listening to. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn or Facebook discussion groups. Jörn Schattenberg. So let's move on, because I thought there was a lot of very interesting additional things. Roger Green. Since you volunteered, why don't you go first? Um, So a personal highlight that I was going to share with you, and I think Michael was there, we had a session on challenges in screening on alcoholic and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We had four uh, participants in that session yesterday. Maya Tila, who unfortunately couldn't attend, patient representative, and two colleagues, Peter Jepsen, among others, and Ivana Draganovic, uh, the ELPA patient representative. She actually showed the surface the Nash tsunami in her slides. She pulled out uh, this as an example of patient uh, contribution to the field, and uh, I wanted to share that with you here on the podcast. I, f- I think that was a great thing. Michael, you saw that? Mike Patel. Uh, yes, I was going to comment on two of the presentations from that group, but uh, yeah, it was, it's kind of cool to see the world come together in this way. The room was packed. And there were about, I'm going to guess, 50 to 75 people out in the hall watching the whole thing on screen. I know that because that's where I saw it from. The, frankly, the rooms were too hot for me to go. I mean, Mike wanted me to sit in the front row with him. But, but after a while, those rooms were just hot enough that I wanted to be out in the hall so I could it's breathe. It's usually easy to get the front row, Roger. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, so I, uh, I resisted the urge to show any reaction when she did that. And I wasn't with anybody who knew me. So nobody turned around and pointed. If I'd been in the front row with Mike, it might have been different. But yeah, that was fantastic. I, I love that moment. I agree. And I love that presentation. So you are brought up a good point. About, about Maya, I mean, she was on the screen because she couldn't be there, but she talked about the challenges that uh, GPs, because uh, that was like the title of it, uh, the primary care physicians were having. There's a bit of fatigue out there uh, about telling people the lifestyle changes. So uh, yeah, you have to lose some weight and you have to exercise more and that they may not want to do anymore until a drug is approved. So the whole discussion we just had is important in a, in a lot of ways. Okay, go, Ian, go, go next and then Mike and then I'll go. Ian Rowe. Yeah, I just, well, one final comment on that, on that screening session and particularly around those primary care aspects. And we're in 
deep conversation with colleagues locally and you know across the UK about what primary care want to do. And one of the things that they feel is that extended testing strategies, which is kind of what we've developed in Leeds, which is stepwise, requires quite a lot of primary care, is actually preventing them doing that lifestyle intervention and trying to optimally manage comorbidities. They feel that they're doing too much testing and not enough action. So I think it's quite interesting to hear those different perspectives because I think they, they recognise that you know maybe a drug treatment is going to be a, quite a long way from the vast majority of patients with whatever we're going to call it from 10 o'clock. It's quite a different perspective to some of the things that, that Maya was saying and and I think it's it's important that we that we see that tension. Interesting. You look like you want to say. Yeah, yeah. I do actually, uh, because because uh, I'm I'm running around to the other side of this table, and I'm thinking that uh, NHS right has announced in the last uh, several months that they're about to invest a, a ton of money in 25 community fiber scan centers, and that Nice is now going to reimburse. And I just feel like England, the UK is out ahead on this. I know that in the UK it's popular to bash the NHS for not being ahead on anything, uh, particularly among voters, if not among medical professionals. I just think you guys are out ahead. You're doing a lot of very smart things about it. I think. That's an interesting comment, and I think we're going to be looking to the UK for a lot of leadership on this. Frankly, I think that's I think that's probably fair. And well, everybody criticises NHS England, but they have pushed the agenda on testing for liver disease. And it's interesting that it's really to increase the early diagnosis of liver cancer. That's been the lever that's actually changed the way that the NHS is approaching it. But there's a lot of initiatives that are running now to try and increase diagnosis, and that'll have benefits for all patients with liver disease, not just those who've got advanced disease. So, Ewan, do I recall correctly that when Jeff published his first uh, survey of all the different countries in terms of preparedness that nobody did well, but but UK was number one at that point. I think they got a 50 and nobody else even got that high. Do, do I recall that I think correctly? it was India. I think it was India, to tell you the truth, because they have a NASH guidance document. But I'm sure the UK was better than... India and UK were the two. I don't remember. Uh, I thought UK was ahead of India. It might have been the other way around, but they, they were the two. And UK's taken a whole bunch of steps since then. Yeah, I, and I would agree on that in terms of the alignment of the pathways. And because one of the presentations that we also showed is that even if we identify patients with an imperfect test in Germany. 50% don't show up for their secondary screening test. And that's like, we miss to link the patients to care. Although, frankly, I think having a drug is really going to help with that, right? Because every time I've ever interviewed physicians, look, back in the days of diabetes, we still have diabetes, but before we had the GLP-1s and the SGLT-2s, when all you had was metformin and um, the uh, sulfonylureas, you'd interview physicians for marketing research and their level of frustration with what they couldn't get their patients to do bordered on contempt. And I think that's actually gotten better as the drugs have gotten better. Not that the patients are doing better, but at least doctors feel now they can start to see some success in glycohemoglobin and things like that. So I believe that having drugs will make everything flow smoother. I agree. I, with not much else to say with that. It's funny. I'm, I'm sitting here as you're talking and I'm thinking about Jorn saying how many great things he still wants to cover in this conversation and, and that we have the time left. And it's like, why are we talking about this? Let Jorn say what he wants to say. Well, <laughs> we've all got things we want to say. And actually, Ian goes next and then I go after that and then we'll come back to Jorn. And Mike, I have some things I really do want to talk about too. So that's good. Ian, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, 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 was, I was going to circle to, to where Jorn, I think, was probably going to go to, which was the, the NAFL therapy session yesterday morning, and to highlight the two GLP-1 glucagon coagonists, and the one, the first one, afinopegate which I've just about learned to say now, and then pemvititide. And somebody said to me uh, yesterday afternoon about, you know, how these treatments would be used and the possibility of the cure of NASH, which I do think is an optimistic idea, but drugs that showed a, a, a relatively high rate of complete resolution of fat in the liver 
Um, now, what that really means for patients in the in the longer term and how tolerable these drugs will be in the longer term and what would happen if the drugs are stopped and all of those questions remain. But this idea that you can you know, achieve huge reductions in, in liver fat content readily and quickly is really striking. And, you know, these drugs become more and more efficacious in that regard, at least. And I think it's encouraging to see that. And, and I think, I guess my level of excitement around those is probably or perhaps a bit more than it was around the magical data because, you you know, you can see such huge changes. It gives real, real optimism for, for what's going to be possible in the future for patients who've got other, particularly other metabolic uh, conditions too. I'd agree with Ian that I said there. the second wave of drugs we're seeing now, this is not like we only have one drug that's been presented and now we go back to being frustrated. This is the second wave that comes in and really has strong uh, efficacy effects. So, uh, so I agree with Ian. I think this is a very, very exciting field. I completely agree. And, you know, we've been watching, I mean, this was the first time we saw the Merck drug and I thought it was actually a relevant comment that using SEMO1 as a comparator without a placebo made it a little hard to figure out exactly how good the drug is, right? Because it's, it's a sub optimal dose of, of SEMA. Uh, it's a dose nobody uses of SEMA, really. You could you could have defended 1.2. I don't know how you defend 1. But clearly, it's an exciting drug. And, and we've been watching pemvidatide come through literally from phase 1. So it keeps showing these same results over and over again. I think that's really exciting. Just on that topic, was so there was a bit of uh, contention is too strong for this morning, but there was an issue with the dosage then. You just kind of glossed over it, but is that an issue that it was the one milligram that was used as a comparator? I just think it makes it hard to figure out exactly how good it is. The, the phrase I use in situations like that, it's like trying to beat up on the little sisters of the poor. You know, SEMA, SEMA 1 is a suboptimal dose and there was no placebo. So we know it were, we know it's good. We don't know how good it is would be my point. I don't think it's a problem per se, Mike, only if you're trying to compare it. Well, this is what the media actually picked up. That's what they said. They actually said, I saw it in the news already saying that it may not be what it appears to be, that kind of thing. So It's interesting. They picked it up because a colleague also uh, kind of phrased this kind of, it wasn't aggressive, but strongly. So I think that was one of the notions that, that hang around. And uh, the company wanted to show a benefit, so they choose this. Maybe <laughs> retrospect wasn't the greatest comparator. Uh, on the other hand, this is not a GLP-1, but this is a GLP-1 plus, And this is the context of, so the concept is that we have something that happens in the liver through the glucagon receptors. And I think Ian pinpointed it when he said, you know, this smells the fat in the liver away and something we don't see with the GLP-1s by themselves. And even the higher dose of GLP-1 would have been my expectation, wouldn't have done it to the same extent. So I think those extended GLP-1 agonisms are really something we will uh, be looking out for in the future for the liver-specific effect. And, and by the way, looming behind all this is a triple agonist from Hanmi in South Korea. I know Hanmi has arrangements with Merck on a couple of things. I don't know if the triple agonist is part of it, but they've been putting up posters at every meeting for the last year and a half, and their numbers dwarf pembitatine. 90% reductions is 50% or more of patients. It's crazy numbers. So I think that that's going to be a majorly promising therapeutic class as we go forward, certainly for anybody who is not yet cirrhotic. The big questions of Benabia will be around tolerability because there were, the addition of another agonist just seemed to add a bit more in terms of side effects. And, and there were quite a number of patients with abdominal pain, which I think for, for a disease that's, that's otherwise not completely asymptomatic, but largely symptom-free and, and for therapies that are going to be taken in not for very short duration, that those sorts of issues will become more relevant, but we need to see bigger studies and, and over a longer duration to really understand how that's going to work. I agree. And here's the flip side on that, right? Uh, SEMA1 might not have the same side effect profile that you see with SEMA2.4. So we know that SEMA has, you know, gastric distress issues. And you take a look and you say, oh my gosh, this is worse, but is it worse than 2.4? We don't know. So within that presentation, we saw two more. There's a time-restricted feeding, which wasn't medical. I use that concept, so I'm somewhat excited of it. And going back to the pharmacologic treatments, the 
of uh, fatty acid synthesis inhibitors. Uh, we've seen some data in earlier meetings. And then there was the novel concept to use RNA interference. And I think this is also something that could come on strong. The genetic targets, totally different MOA. They pretty much showed the phase one data in two parts, small study for tolerability, and then actually a 12-month or even a little longer study with 46 patients and three liver biopsies. And the numbers that resonated with me was knockdown of the target by 60 or 70% at six months after three doses. And I think it was still down to 30% after two doses. Yeah. Two doses. There was there, there was a dose right after the initial biopsy. There was a dose at three months and that was it. Two doses. You're right. At 12 months. So I, that, that's interesting and it's long lasting. Agreed. And uh, now that concept has been around for a little bit. I mean, someone had a, a year and a half ago, maybe a small company, I think Arrowhead maybe, or Arrowwood, I forget what the exact name, had a uh, late breaker poster distinction on exactly the same topic. And I know because we did that uh, AZ is, or AZ, depending on which side of the pond you live on, is heading into phase 2B with a uh, genetic product targeted specifically at PNPLA3 and are earlier in the pathway with one at HSN 1713. And they're not alone. Novo bought a miRNA company a while ago. And the product that they showed, I talked about this in the pre, the product that they showed came from alnelum. It's basically the same strategy that they used to create uh, inclycerin for uh, cholesterol reduction, where they're getting roughly PCSK9 level reductions with two doses a year. So I think there's real magic there, potentially. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week begins our five-episode review of Key Easel Congress Finding. Also, keep an eye and ear out on LinkedIn and Facebook for invitations to share your thoughts on our upcoming brand change, given that, as people keep writing, I quote, Nash is dead. Long live Nash and Nassau, end of quote. So until then, stay safe. Surf on. If you're in the States, enjoy the July 4th weekend, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.